This is Remembering Yugoslavia, the show exploring the memory of a country that no longer exists. I'm your organizer, Peter Korchnak. The 24th Olympic Winter Games are underway in Beijing, so it's only natural that I would take a look back at the Sarajevo Olympics, which began 38 years ago this week. On February 8, 1984, 50,000 spectators attended the opening ceremony of the 14th Winter Olympic Games at the Koševo Stadium. For 12 ensuing days, 250,000 spectators and 2 billion television viewers watched nearly 1,300 athletes from 49 countries compete for medals or simply participate. The games were special and not only because my country, Czechoslovakia, won silver in the ice hockey tournament and the host country got its first medal in the Winter Olympics and Torville and Dean got a since unmatched perfect score in the ice dance competition. Sarajevo 84 was the greatest sporting event in Yugoslavia's history and the first Winter Olympics to be held in a socialist country. To many ex-Yugoslavs, the Sarajevo Olympics are still that country's brightest moment on the world stage, if not its last glorious hurrah. But these are not the only storylines of the Sarajevo Olympics, the most unlikely of events held in a unique period of the Cold War and one that carries a heavy load of memory to this day. Most Yugoslavs look back at this with nostalgia that somehow Sarajevo became the very center of the sports world, that Yugoslavia was watched by upwards of two billion people. And a lot of people think this is really the last gasp of communist Yugoslavia, of really being pertinent and in front of the national spotlight for something very positive. In today's episode of Remembering Yugoslavia, I'm going to look at just how the Sarajevo Olympics came about, at the stories they told and the memories they engendered, and also at valiant efforts to revive more of their glory. But before we light the Olympic cauldron, let me introduce some new champions of Remembering Yugoslavia. Thank you Stevan and Vedran for becoming the latest Patreon sustainers, and thank you Bill and Yelena for your contributions. It is only thanks to the heroic performances of listeners like Stevan, Vedran, Bill and Jelena that I am able to bring you the story of the Sarajevo Olympics and other tales of Yugoslavia's memory month in and month out. So join these and other fans of Remembering Yugoslavia and make a donation to its organization and success. Go to rememberingyugoslavia.com donate and whatever option you choose, become a gold medalist of my heart. You may remember Jason Vujic from the recent episode about the Yugo car. He followed up the history of Yugoslavia's most famous export with a history of Yugoslavia's greatest two weeks. His book, The Sarajevo Olympics, A History of the 1984 Winter Games, came out in 2015 from the University of Massachusetts Press. I really needed to find out how the games came to be, how such an unassuming and offbeat part of Yugoslavia competed with cities around the world competed in a milieu that was somewhat foreign to Bosnia. Bosnia was not a place in the 50s and 60s and 70s where fashionable Europeans would go skiing. And how Sarajevo, uh, a capital within a poor republic um, in 1970, Bosnia's uh, per capita GDP was 66% of the rest of Yugoslavia, you know, as Yugoslavia as a whole. So this was not the place the type of place that could win the games. And so I set out to write a basic history of the games. And so in order to do that, you have to look back and understand the Olympic movement, how games are bid for, how games are organized, and, and, and how they're paid for. 
Um, and Sarajevo bid for the games uh, simply as a way to create a winter tourist industry. That's what it wanted to do. Um, it wanted to create and build two or three ski resorts and to introduce Bosnia and to introduce its natural beauty to the rest of the world. And so this falls back into Yugoslavia's developmental history in the 60s and 70s. The country grew rapidly after World War II, but borrowed heavily from the West. And by the 1980s, by the 1970s, was desperately in need of hard currency. This is the same story of the Yugo, you know, exporting the Yugo car for hard currency. And so Bosnia needed money. Bosnia was big on infrastructure projects, roads, dams, bridges. And so Bosnia was open to anything at all that would bring tourist money to bring, you know, American dollars or British pounds or especially German marks to pay down its developmental debt. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, Yugoslavia's economic heyday was coming to an end. The ballooning foreign debt, exacerbated by the oil crises, and a slowdown in investment across the board led not only to a decline in living standards, but also in attractiveness to and visits by foreign tourists. So development planners saw the Olympics, one of the best marketing tools for any city, as a potential catalyst to reviving the country's tourism industry and an injection of much-needed foreign currency to keep the economy running and meet its debt obligations. That said, it wasn't a slam dunk, or should I say an empty netter. No one in Yugoslavia thought Bosnia had any hope, Bosnia had any business applying. My question coming into the book was, why didn't Slovenia apply? I mean, the Slovenes are good at this stuff. Uh, the Slovenes had international competitions when the Bosnians almost never had any competitions at all. I compare Bosnia in its bid for hosting a Winter Olympics. It would be as if Charleston, West Virginia bid for the Olympic Games. Yes, Charleston is a city with hotels and bars and restaurants. And yes, it has beautiful mountains within driving distance. But no, this is not a place that can compete with Innsbruck. You know, this is not a place that can compete with Vail. Right. So why did uh, Slovenia not apply? Or why did Yugoslavia not use Slovenia, where all these facilities are pre-existing? As you say, you know, there's history of winter sports, there's beautiful mountains. You're right. I mean, the, the economic development piece is one thing, of course. But uh, why not uh, Slovenia? It would have been so much easier. Slovenia had the ability, it had the ski lodges, it had had international skiing, ski jump competitions, for example, and it had the expertise on the ground. Um, very few people in Bosnia knew how to run any type of winter sports event, right? You have to think in terms of organization, not just money. Um, I think the Slovenes probably thought it's a massive undertaking. There might have been some thinking, you know, Yes, we can do this and, you know, we hold our own in winter sports, but we're not Swedes. We're not the Swiss. You know, we're, we're not Austrians um, who have the money and the wherewithal. You know, th there was a thinking among the Slovenes that it was going to cost too much money. Uh, we probably wouldn't win if we bid and then we'd have to pay for it if we did. And so I think that's why the Slovenes didn't bid and never even thought of bringing games. But Bosnia did. In addition to Yugoslavia's development policies, the drama in the Olympic movement itself played into the eventual Olympics in Sarajevo. Through the 1960s and 70s, the Olympic movement was at a low ebb. You have a, a number of problems in a row. Um, you have 68 in Mexico City, right before the Mexico City Games. You have the student massacre in Mexico City where protesting students were shot at and murdered in droves. 
which to an extent was a, a pre-Olympic cleanup effort. You know, you're not going to protest during the games. We're going to be tough on you. And it got out of hand. Um, you have 72 in Munich with the horrible murders, the terrorist attacks. 73 Denver had won the Winter Games. And in a referendum, the residents of Denver voted to give it back. They didn't want the games. They didn't want to pay for them. 76, Montreal, um, cost overruns into the billions. You know, it was outrageous. And then, you know, you have through the 70s, the movement to boycott the 1980 games in Moscow. So there's politics or it's just getting into the games at, a, at a, an incredibly high level, interfering with the games. Money is starting to creep into the games and cities do not want to face massive debt. You would bid for games six years in advance. And in 1978, the big problem was Los Angeles. Los Angeles was the only viable bid for the 1984 Summer Games. No one really wanted it. Riyadh had thought about it. Tehran, imagine Olympics in Tehran in 1984. And Los Angeles bid for the games, but the city of Los Angeles said, we are not going to take on any debt from these games. This is a private proposal. This is not a proposal from the city of Los Angeles. And the Olympic movement, they couldn't believe it. The IOC members, they were very rich men at the time. Think of a country club full of the sons and brothers of dictators, blue-blooded Americans and Brits, princes and, and dukes and earls, these kind of people, plus high-ranking communist officials. The IOC just couldn't believe that Los Angeles would be so crass as to not take on a billion dollars in debt in the name of the Olympic Games. If Los Angeles in 1978 said, take it or leave it, and the Olympic Committee said, well, leave it, the Olympics were dead. The, the Olympics would probably have not survived 1984 if the IOC had not gone with Los Angeles and let Los Angeles have a for-profit games that would sink or swim you know, with a private Olympic Committee. So in the midst of this turmoil, three cities bid for the Winter Games. The first uh, was Gothenburg, Sweden, the home of OVO, and then Sapporo, Japan, which had had the games, I believe, in maybe 72, and then Sarajevo. And no one in their right mind thought Sarajevo had any chance. None. No one followed it. No one really cared until, out of the blue, Sarajevo wins, which was shocking in, in how it came down. This was the second narrative of the 1984 Winter Olympics. Sarajevo were the games that saved the Olympic movement. Kate Meehan Pedrati has written that, in order to capitalize on an image that the International Olympic Committee was already promoting, the Sarajevo Olympic Organizing Committee, the Tourist Association of Yugoslavia, and other Olympic and tourist organizations worked to construct Sarajevo and Yugoslavia as healthy embodiments of universal values in an otherwise fractured Cold War world, stressing the allegedly natural harmony of Yugoslav non-alignment diplomacy and International Olympic Brotherhood. Woven into this image, advanced in tourist brochures, guidebooks, internationally circulated Olympic newsletters, and special exhibitions, was the implication that Yugoslavia's people actively lived this universalism on a daily basis by virtue of their citizenship. End quote. But as you'd expect, there was a difference between the rhetoric and reality. Sarajevo, in its bid, it was small time. Most cities spend in the tens of millions just to bid just to propagandize, just to get the IOC to vote for the city. You know, it's chaos and, and the money is huge. Sarajevo's entire, entire operation was to send, you know, a delegation to Athens to put on their proposal. It was a couple hours. You stand there and you show slides and you talk about your city. And they actually sent a train car 
they took out the seats and they put poster boards up in it to show the Olympic committee members, some of the richest men around. They come in one side of the train car and they look at the exhibits and come out the other. That was the extent of Sarajevo's bid. Now, the reason Gothenburg didn't win, that was the obvious choice. The problem was the Nordic events and the arena events would be on the coast in in Gothenburg, but the Alpine events would be 500 kilometers away. So there would be two Olympic villages. And in those days, the IOC couldn't handle that. So they said no. And Sapporo had already had the Olympics. So Sarajevo wins the bid. And once they won the bid, the Slovenes went crazy. Most Yugoslavs could not believe. Serbs, Croats, people in authority, most newspapers just couldn't believe it. And the Slovenes particularly were angry. They did not want to invest their money in a Bosnian Games. They thought a Bosnian Games was beneath them. The Bosnians had not asked the Slovenes for help with their bid. You know, they even at one point, leaders of the Slovenian government will go to Tito in 79. Before Tito died, they actually visit him at his mansion and try to get him to give the games back. Um, You know, that's the level of the rancor and animosity. I mean, I, I think on one level, there was a, a, a supreme desire to not face massive debt. But on another level, I think there was a great deal of jealousy by the Slovenes. Sports Illustrated, they sent a famous Olympics journalist to the country to, to drive around. And, you know, he interviewed Slovene tourist officials. And they were all calling Bosnians names, you know, Muyo and Hasso, making fun of them, like Laurel and Hardy, as morons, as people who weren't, you know, had the ability to do anything. They said that, yeah, the games are going to go on, but no one's going to change the light bulbs. You know, no one's going to do the basic things that need to be done that you would see in Germany or Sweden or Austria or Japan. That was the fear. Not that they couldn't put the games on, but that it was just going to be not well done. Uh, And winter games had problems. Even Lake Placid was a disaster in terms of organization. And that was the Americans with many, many millions behind them and knowledge of these events. And so that, that was why the Slovenes were so angry. The Sarajevo Olympic Games exposed and perhaps exacerbated some of the economic and political issues that had by then already been splitting Yugoslavia apart. Inter-Republican rivalries for resources, disputes about proportional Republican financing for the joint venture of these Olympic Games, suspicions of corruption and financial malfeasance, allegations of nationalism and other isms, all injected an ugly aspect into the Games. Invisible to the naked eye of casual sports fans, of course. So behind the sense of pride for being the center of the sporting world, for having pulled off the impossible, the risks that led to the country's dissolution were intensifying in the run-up to the Olympics. The hero of the book, in my opinion, is Sarajevo, is, is the Olympic Organizing Committee. It started with the head of the Communist Party in Bosnia, Bronko Mikulic, a hardline to many groups through the 80s oppressor, not afraid to use the police to tamp down on crime and dissent you know, even what we would consider rightful or lawful dissent. But he was such a pro-development proponent. He was not afraid of building roads. He was not afraid of trying to pull Bosnia kicking and screaming into the next century. I'm not praising this man. I'm just saying, you know, who he was and what he wanted. And so the Olympic Games fit in with his vision for Bosnia. When you look at Olympic expenditures for cities, you know, some cities will say, yeah, we turned a profit like Atlanta. But what they don't put is that 50 new buses and bus lines and an entire subway stop or an entire university wing, you know, was built by some other entity. 
So they, they hide expenses, especially infrastructure expenses, off the books. And that's essentially what Bosnia did. Through the 70s and 80s, they had this plan to cut down on pollution in Sarajevo, to, to essentially rip up most of the downtown streets, replacing sewer lines, expanding the airport, expanding bus lines, you know, cleaning up Sarajevo and taking it from a very dirty very, very polluted city. Um, the river was polluted. The air was polluted. I mean, most people liken Bosnia in the 70s to Pittsburgh and Cleveland of the 30s, you know, a tough industrial place. And Mikulic did that. And so once that was finished, you know, he used that extra taxes. He used and requested the Yugoslav National Army to help clear ski slopes. He had student worker actions. 3,000 students came in from all over Yugoslavia and all over the communist bloc to help build socialism by building ski slopes for the Sarajevo Olympics. And by hook and crook, and also with about $110 million, $100 million in you know American TV money, money from sponsors all over the world, they essentially pulled it off and broke even, which is amazing. You know, absolutely amazing compared to the the monumental losses of other Olympic games that Sarajevo probably broke even, even with support of the Yugoslav National Army and even with Mikulic building new roads and bridges and things. And so that's the real, real amazing story of these games. I was 14, and my memories are great because uh, actually everyone was excited about that. Lifelong Sarajevan Sanela Klaric is an architect, a university professor of architecture, an expert in rural as well as sustainable development, and last but not least, a member of Federation Parliament. Like many people in the former Yugoslavia, Klaric remembers the Sarajevo Olympics fondly. Firstly, it was a part of the memories when I was a very happy person. <laughs> Yugoslavia for me means, and my family means um, a lot, means prosper and uh, freedom. For us, it was really the period of time that we were proud that we are able to continue and to live together. Also now, I think that uh, it's important to also promote that identity because somehow we lost any other identities except the war and the suffer and divisions and fascism. So I think it's, it's really important to promote many other very good um, pictures about us and identities. And of course, Olympic is the one. We were organized in a way to have guests from all over ex-Yugoslavia. And I was hosting some of the children my age uh, in my house. And we had organized the buses every morning just to have flags uh, of Yugoslavia in our hands. And they are driving us to the different uh, sport places to support to be the, in the audience. The places were very, very crowded with different people, but they want us to have Yugoslavia flag. And we are actually uh, promoting our country. <laughs> so imagine as a 14 years old uh, girl, I was on all over the places for the two weeks, 
watching and supporting uh, different people. And it was really great. And we also had a lot of fun with our uh, friends, the same ages. But also after the Olympic Games, we continued to work in our schools. And I remember I was with my teacher on the Trebovich on the bobslide. And we are competing there. <laughs> it was also very exciting. And I remember I was very afraid, but I did slide uh, on the bobsled. So bobsled was part of the school curriculum? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In that moment, yes. With the caveat that the bobsled track actually has three sections, which can be separated or combined by a switch into tracks for racing, training, or recreation. Thanks to this first-in-the-world feature, the bobsled track can be used year-round. And with its 13 curves and the average slope of 10%, the racetrack is said to have been the steepest and the fastest in the world, with speeds exceeding 140 kilometers or 88 miles per hour. Did you stay friends with any of the people who stayed at your house uh, from other places, other parts of the country? Yes, yes. During war, we were in contact very much, in, even now. In my case, I had friends from Slovenia. You visit each other still? Yes, and we are in contact. The Olympics were the high point of Yugoslav history, Yugoslav sports history, especially in the 80s after Tito died, right? So what did it mean in terms of that, in terms of the country, school, media, you know, that kind of stuff? What was that rhetoric about? What did you hear? What do you remember? Was there anything else that impacted you as a school-aged child? In that moment in Sarajevo, everything was really about uh, reconstruction, preparation, and and even the snow come the day, that night, actually, just before the competition. So for us, it was like we are blessed, let's say, even though in that moment, most of us was, were atheists, but we were like, we are, we are feeling that, uh, you know, everything is around to help us to show how strong and how brave and proud we are. <laughs> The Sarajevo 1984 mascot became and remains everyone's friend. Vučko, or Wolfie, was an illustrated wolf, the animal being a strong, courageous native of the region's forests. He was an avid sportsman, a funny, furry friend of all, and a bit of a rascal. The humorous little clips of Vučko getting into trouble doing various sports were legendary. My favorite is when he takes off from a ski jump, lands, and unable to stop, ends up in a Cevapcici restaurant. 836 artists participated in a design competition. Joze Trobec's Vučko won among the six shortlisted proposals in a popular vote by newspaper and magazine readers. The other candidates were a snowball, a mountain goat, a weasel, a lamb, and a hedgehog. Trobec was Slovenian, so Slovenes did end up playing a major part in the Olympics after all. One of my prized possessions as a boy, and pretty much the only objects from Yugoslavia I had, were two metal pins, značke, with Vučko on them. I still have them. They were among a gazillion souvenirs made for the Olympics, and in fact, Vučko continues to adorn souvenirs from Sarajevo. You really can't visit the city without running into Vučko. The logo of the Olympics was a stylized, abstract snowflake still present around Sarajevo on buildings from the Olympics, like the Holiday Inn Hotel or the Skenderia Hall. There's one embedded in the pavement on the Ferhadia Promenade, and it makes an appearance in some newish graffiti. And while the main Olympic posters were drawn by the Bosnian artist Ismar Mojezinović, 16 world artists made special edition posters as well. Andy Warhol was one of them, with a poster of a speed skater. 
But it is Vučko who continues to embody the Sarajevo Olympics and to many Yugoslavia itself. Mismo Vučkovi, Vučko je naš. Vujek's history of Sarajevo 84 is written from a U.S. perspective. I mean, his ancestry may be from the Balkans, but he's an American. As a fellow American, I'm curious about that side of the Olympics, the American side. Of course, it's about the money. The games were an American endeavor through the 1980s. Enormous American endeavor, financially and culturally. You can't take away American money from the modern Olympic movement, especially American television money. For most of the post-World War II history of the games, American television money drives the entire engine of the Olympics. <laughs> big, big money. Uh, the 84 Los Angeles Olympics, those rights sold for $225 million. And the Sarajevo rights sold, uh, I believe, for about $100, $103, $104 million to the Americans. Between Europe and the Middle East, now people come from all points of the compass to Sarajevo for the Winter Olympics. Sports presents the 14th Winter Olympic Games. The overwhelming piece to this is American money, um, which is ironic. An Olympics in a communist country, infrastructure built in a communist country coming from American television money. You interview people in the city and, and no one really had negative memories of the games. And neither did Americans. You know, a lot of American uh, journalists went. They would talk about how the city, you know, the buildings were brown and there was a lot of smog. And they all commented on how many cigarettes Yugoslavs smoke. <laughs> they were blown away. You know, one journalist wrote that his two boys came with him, two 12, 12 13-year-old boys or something, and they wanted to go somewhere and they just jumped in a taxi cab. And he wrote, I, I can't believe it. I, you know, my sons in Detroit might not have gotten there if they had jumped in a taxi cab. You know, they were blown away at, at the hospitality of Bosnians. Oh, it, with these children are in taxi cab, this journalist writes that when they got where they were going, <laughs> the cabbie offered the two boys cigarettes. <laughs> right? I mean, they were just blown away by the coffee. They didn't understand the coffee, the Westerners coming here. And the smoking, even though smoking was ubiquitous in America, then it wasn't close to those games. But still, the king of these mountains tonight is King Winter himself, dumping oceans of snow in Sarajevo, sending frigid hurricane-speed winds over the peaks around the town. It's an exciting place to be right now, Sarajevo. Americans were coming off of Lake Placid. And Lake Placid is, is almost mythical to Americans in sport. You know, you have the miracle on ice in hockey. The notorious victory of an amateur Team USA beating the mightiest hockey team in history, the Zbornaya of the Soviet Union. But Lake Placid was a mega disaster. You know, it went in debt by many millions. Lake Placid was a tiny city. The press center was the high school, <laughs> right? I mean, this is not a place that, that should be hosting hundreds. I mean, there were two hundred and 30 or 40 odd journalists just from the communist bloc that came to Yugoslavia. They couldn't handle that many in the press center in Lake Placid. And so there was a lot riding on this with the Olympic movement, Juan Antonio Samaran, television, a lot was riding on this. No one had spent up to that point $100 million for the broadcast rights to the games. Unfortunately, in the US, everything was on tape delay. And so 
the press would get the scores and call the scores back to the U.S. or send them by teletype. And everyone knew that the American hockey team had lost right out of the gate. (laughs) So it was a disaster for ABC Sports. I don't know how much money they lost, but they lost a lot of money. Welcome to Sarajevo then. Nice to have you with us. This Olympic Games had nothing to do with the U.S. government. The U.S. government was just as shocked as anybody else that Bosnia bid, or they didn't even pay attention. Bosnia's bidding. They're not going to win. Like, why pay attention? Yugoslavs were largely on their own in this. But in the background, you have that push in the 1980s to keep Yugoslavia afloat. You know, whatever we can do as Americans to encourage business. This is when you see Coca-Cola bringing over Slovene wine. And that was simply... Coke's way of trying to get its money back from selling Coca-Cola in Yugoslavia. You know, barter trade, barter trade. And so the Olympics was pushed by the embassy. The Olympics was pushed by American companies, like like any Olympic Games would be. But also in the background was the State Department wanted people to do business in Yugoslavia. And so that's how the Games helped promote business. But really by the mid to late 80s, a lot of that's starting to wrap up. You know, it didn't work. It didn't work. Yugoslavia is failing. It's too in debt. And then you have the rise of Milosevic and and others. The Soviet Union dominated the ice hockey tournament by winning all its games and outscoring its opponents by a combined score of 58 to 6. Yugoslavia came last in the Sarajevo 84 hockey tournament. With that being said, we had other stories. You know, you had Scott Hamilton in, in figure skating, and then you had Torval and Dean, who were British from the UK, but but who transcended. They were one of those great Olympic Olympians that the world embraces. I mean, if anyone dominated Sarajevo, it was Torval and Dean, and also Katarina Witt. Katarina Witt shows up. She's beautiful. She's stunning and wins. 19-year-old Katarina Witt won her first Olympic gold medal in Sarajevo. That year, she was voted the GDR Female Athlete of the Year. A figure skater from Zagreb, Sanda Dubravcic, was the final of 1,600 Yugoslav torchbearers. She lit the cauldron at Koševo and then finished 10th at the tournament. She later became a physician and did some research work on sports injuries among figure skaters. Another narrative of the Sarajevo Olympics unfolded on the backdrop of the Cold War. Geopolitically, they were a momentary bridge, right? Remember the, the, the Americans boycotted Moscow. Who knows what the Soviets spent on their games and who knows what they lost on those games, but it's crazy money. So they were going to extract their pound of flesh from the Americans as well. Um, they weren't going to come. So this was a momentary bridge between those two games. That's 1980 Summer Olympics in Moscow, which the Americans and 65 other countries boycotted, and 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles, which the Soviets and 14 Eastern Bloc countries and allies boycotted. Makes the Beijing Olympics diplomatic boycott look like child's play, doesn't it? No country boycotted the Sarajevo Olympics, and in fact, a record 49 nations participated, including Egypt, Puerto Rico, and Senegal. For a time there, that Cold War angst was largely forgotten. But it was, as someone described it, it was just a brief interlude before everything falls apart. It was one of the last small games, one of the last semi-innocent games in a way. The marketing hadn't yet overwhelmed the games. I mean, you go to LA in 84, holy smokes. You know, you see the 7-Eleven Velodrome, (laughs) the McDonald's Aqua Center, you know, that kind of stuff. It was just this brief interlude for the Olympic movement 
when things actually worked for once, the politics weren't nasty. We don't have all of the things that make the Olympics crazy in the coming years. They worked until they didn't. Most of the infrastructure cities build for their Olympic Games, summer or winter, remains in place afterward, but sometimes it doesn't get used as much, or even at all. I remember seeing abandoned and overgrown facilities in Athens a mere decade after the 2004 Games. A similar thing happened in Sarajevo, albeit on a much smaller scale. If you think about it, if you live in Zagreb, are you going to take that bus or that train that was somewhat arduous? I, I've taken a bus from Zagreb to Sarajevo, and it's a long, winding path. If you're in Croatia in 1988, and you can go to a ski resort outside of Sarajevo, or you can go to Slovenia, where are you going to go? <laughs> and then you know, you have Kapaunik and, and some other places that are built in Serbia. And so the Serbs have a place to go. If you're from Austria, you're not going to Bosnia. If you're from France, you're not going to Bosnia. It gave the city some nice resorts. It certainly gave it a very nice Zetra Hall for community events, for big city events. Like any city the size of Sarajevo does need a big basketball arena. But at the same time, you knew that the whole idea of jump-starting a tourist trade was going to fail. I mean, anyone could see that. And so that's what happened, you know. Um, and then once the tourists aren't really coming in, then the services start to decline. And then you're, you're back into that trap of not having enough hard currency to be able to pay for, you know, things you need. Um, and so these facilities, even before the war, start to decline. Um, they were still quite nice and beautiful places, probably in 1990, 1991. And then they got largely destroyed or heavily damaged during the Bosnian War, during the Siege of Sarajevo. Very few games return to us. We keep writing books about and love to talk about the Berlin Games in 36. We also talk about Munich, the murder of these Jewish athletes. And we, games will return periodically. But very few games have ever entered the national consciousness again, like Sarajevo, 10 years later, because Juan Antonio Samaran in the Olympic movement, 10 years later, they find themselves with a former Olympic venue that's under siege. Most trees in Sarajevo or, or a scrub brush, it was cut down during the war for firewood. And so they actually use the seats of Zetra Hall for coffins. And if you go to Sarajevo today, um, Zetra Hall is surrounded by graves. I mean, big cemetery, and it was bigger because of the war. And so in Lillehammer in 1994, the entire light motif of, of the opening ceremonies of the games was remember Sarajevo. Everyone in the stadium got a mag light that said on it, remember Sarajevo. All the greats from 84 are going to be asked, what did Sarajevo mean to you, Scott Hamilton? What did it mean to you, Torvalindine? What did it mean to you, Katarina Witt? Messages for the people under siege. Amid the parade of athletes at the Lillehammer Olympics opening ceremony, marched 14 Bosnian athletes. They, along with the world, heard President Samaranch's plea for sanity in Sarajevo. Ten years ago, we were in Sarajevo for the Olympic Games, a city then dedicated to sport, understanding, friendship, and peace. Sarajevo, whose people for over two years have suffered too much. The message of the Olympic movement is stronger than ever. Please stop fighting. Please stop killing. Drop your guns, please.
the Syria of Olympics came back with a vengeance during the Bosnian Wars, kind of a way to drum up sympathy, to refocus the world's attention. And, and that's what the Olympic Games are. They're, they're a public theater. Sanela Klarić spent a siege in Sarajevo doing what she could to continue her architecture studies. She also painted, she designed and made and exhibited clothes, she made and exhibited sculptures. The Trebevich mountain, where the bobsled track is located, was one of the locations where the Bosnian Serb army positioned artillery and snipers for a clear view of the city. The bobsled track served as a sniper nest with some 50 holes drilled into the structure. After the war, the place was essentially looted and stripped of all remaining valuable parts and materials. Only the concrete structure of the track remained. The abandoned ruins of some of the Sarajevo 84 infrastructure, including the bobsled track, continue to fascinate ruin porn enthusiasts. Much less visible, or popular, are the rebuilt and reconstructed facilities like the Koševo Stadium, Zetra Hall and the Skenderia Complex. But there's an effort underway to renovate the bobsled track, or should I say the bobsled and loose track, as the now derelict track can be used in both sports. One of the leaders of the effort is Sanela Kladić. So I have to say that I didn't uh, visit Mount Trebevich until 2014. Imagine. Because I was refusing to go to climb on that mountain. And once when I went... I was amazed how many nice memories I got because that was the most nearest mountain to the city. We had spent a lot of time with our parents with this uh, cable car. Imagine how it was fun <laughs> in the cable cars when you are a child. So once when I climb and I see the bobsled, I actually uh, said, no, nobody will take that mountain from me. And then I started to work on that with the students and uh, some partners from the universities from Germany on the landscape architecture projects um, and then the bobsled. The reconstruction and revitalization of the bobsled tract on the Trebevich mountain. The track is located within a 70-hectare complex which included other Olympic facilities like the press and information centers, parking lots and others. It's accessible by road and, since 2018 again, by cable car from the center of town. Some basic repairs and cleanup have already been made in recent years. Bobsled teams from various countries unofficially trained there in summertime. I'm proud to say Team Slovakia was the first to do so in 2014. The place is also popular with mountain bikers. No winter activities take place there. Yet. I started to arrange different events to promote, but also to gather the people uh, around that project to support that in the future to actually uh, have uh, enough budgets to reconstruct. Those efforts received a boost in 2018 when Klaric was elected to the parliament of the Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina, one of the country's two constituent entities, the other being Republika Srpska. When put back into operation, the track will be one of only 17 bobsled tracks in the world. The location is now a place of public interest, included in the Sarajevo Canton's development plan with a corresponding financial allocation. The Trebevich mountain has since 2014 been a protected natural area. International sporting organizations have also taken an interest. And, in an unlikely if fascinating twist, a campaign is underway to submit a combined Barcelona-Sarajevo bid for the 2030 Winter Olympics. The two cities have been sister cities since the year 2000. Bobsled, luge, and ski jumping competitions would be held in Sarajevo. 
to combat some of the issues that befall Olympic cities, with gobs of money spent on building new facilities that go unused after the event, the IOC now requires 70% of facilities to be already in existence before bidding. Now we have a chance with Barcelona. I'm always very positive and I believe, so why not? Maybe Sarajevo will host the next Olympic Games in 2030. It's better to talk about that than about next war that everybody <laughs> talking about. And as the architect, uh, for me, uh, those sports infrastructure is very expensive and it's more expensive during use. So it's very important to have sustainable approach. Unfortunately, at this point in our conversation, technology gave out. We had to switch tools and the call quality plummeted faster than a loser at Trebevich. But this is the scoop. A team of stakeholders, which includes the Winter Olympic Games 84 organization, are applying to register their effort with the authorities, after which they will be filing a master plan for the reconstruction. Then comes the fundraising. The equivalent of about $11 million is needed for the project, which the group hopes to finance from the canton and country governments, which have declared the project a priority, the European Union, the International Olympic Committee, the governments of Catalonia and Spain, individual donations, and other sources. The biggest challenge? Things move slowly in Bosnia and Herzegovina. But Kladic has built a good team, has support from her family, students and the community, and she is full of energy, the kind you get and the kind that drives you when you work collaboratively toward a good cause. It's almost time to say so long to Sarajevo. If we learn something here, maybe it's not to prejudge places or people or events, not to decide in advance that a poor city in a poor country can't possibly put on a first-class Olympics, because they've done that here, and in the process, They've shown us just how warm and friendly, how cooperative and generous the Yugoslavian people are. It's the unpredictability of human character that gives the games their flavor, their excitement, and their meaning. It's time to say so long to Sarajevo, so now we'll all go home and get haircuts and eat hamburgers and get stuck in traffic and get reacquainted with the people we've missed so much while we've been here. But as the children sang, it was wonderful in Sarajevo. See you in Calgary, but before that, we'll see you in Los Angeles. I was in first grade during the Winter Olympics in Sarajevo and have no recollection of the event. It must have been big in Czechoslovakia, what with the hockey team's success. But rather than stories about individuals or teams, to me, the biggest story of the Sarajevo Olympics is as Yugoslavia's high point. The Sarajevo Olympics remained a fond memory among people of the former Yugoslavia. Fairy tale, the news media still calls it in anniversary throwback pieces. The chances of the Barcelona Sarajevo bid for the 2030 games are beyond my expertise to assess. It seems like a long shot, but again, I don't know. What I do know is that, as Sanela Klaric told me, the bid offers an opportunity to focus on something positive in the country riven by the talk of secession and war, not to mention corruption, mass emigration and other ills. It's better to talk about that than the next war indeed. 
A friend of mine tells an amusing little story of being a child of the Sarajevo Olympics. I hope she'll forgive me for telling it, but it's too good to keep to myself. The friend's mother went to the hospital the day of the opening ceremony on February 8th. It was a balmy, spring-like February, and because there was no snow and seemingly no chance of it, the Olympics organizers were worried the skiing events would have to be postponed. But that night, a huge snowstorm hit, so big that those outdoor events were indeed postponed, but now due to bad weather. So much snow fell that the newborn and her mother couldn't leave the hospital on their own, and her father couldn't drive his Stojadin, Zastava 101, to pick them up because the car was too light to drive in the fresh snow. So he dragooned a couple of men from a kafana to weigh the car down and ride to the hospital with him. And just before the family reached their home, they were stopped by a funeral taking place across the street. Next on Remembering Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia was such an exceptional place of socialism where women had so much emancipatory power. Yugoslavenka, a Yugoslav woman, is a famous song by Lepa Brena and a starting point for a story of Yugoslav women's emancipation through art. On the next episode of Remembering Yugoslavia, Yasmina Tumbas and the Yugoslavenkas among us. And a book giveaway too. Tune in wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe to make sure you don't miss out. That's all for this episode of Remembering Yugoslavia. Thank you for listening. Find additional information, videos, and a transcript of this episode at rememberingyugoslavia.com slash podcast. And please participate in the organization of Remembering Yugoslavia. Visit rememberingyugoslavia.com slash donate to make a contribution today. Outro music, courtesy of Robert Petrich. Additional music by Petar Alargic, licensed under Creative Commons. Other clips and music used for educational purposes. Special thanks to Valerie Perry. I am Petar Korchniak. Ciao. Thank you.